0: If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. We have been looking every week at what it means for Christ to build his church. We spent a long time going through Matthew's gospel where Jesus promised that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. But if it is his church, and it is, and if he is the one that is going to build it, and he will, then that means that he has total ownership and complete authority over that church over what it looks like, over what its goals are, over what its priorities are. And for us to rightly be called a church doesn't mean that we're just a bunch of people that get together on Sunday and claim that. It, to be a church means that we place ourselves under the sovereign head of Jesus Christ and that we function in the way that he tells us to. And as we go through the book of Acts, what we see is not only a historical record, but it's a helpful accounting of those things and characteristics that have characterized the church in every age. We've seen that the church is a group of people that are indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit, that the church is consistently united around the same core values and principles of teaching, of fellowship, of prayer, those unity things. We've seen that the church is characterized by boldness, even in persecution, that the church is characterized by genuine love and generosity in meeting the needs of one another. We've seen that the church is characterized by godly leadership, and last week, We saw that the church is made up of a changed people, people that are changed by the gospel and who continue to be changed more and more closely into the image of Jesus Christ. We saw through that conversion of Saul, who we know as Paul through the majority of the New Testament, that God can reach down and really can change any heart. There's no one maybe that we could think of that would be farther from conversion than Saul, who is breathing out hatred and murder against the church, and yet God will have his way in the hearts of his people. And an enemy becomes an ally and an apostle even. And we saw that God continues to change hearts. And so as you and I sit here, it's important for us to consider that there's no one beyond salvation, that there's no one so hard, so wicked, so fallen, that the gospel cannot do what the gospel does, and that is regenerate dead, sinful hearts and bring new life in Christ. And that for those of us who have been changed and transformed by the gospel, that God is gracious in that he doesn't leave us as we are. We are a saved people, but we are a people in progress, a people who are consistently being molded into the image and likeness of Christ. And there's a great deal of hope in that, because change isn't dependent on our circumstance. Change isn't dependent on our willpower. Change is simply a function of obedience to what God has called us to be and do, and he's promised to give us the resources necessary to accomplish that. And so today, we're going to look at two separate events in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, and then again in Acts chapter 24, and we're going to deal with waiting. What does it mean to be a church, and not just a corporate body, but a church made up of individuals who spend an awful lot of our time waiting for God to reveal what His will is in our lives? So if you're not there already, find your way to Acts chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 6 through 10 to kind of give you the heart of where we're going to go for our first point today. Matthew... When you're in Matthew for three years, it just comes off naturally. Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 6. It says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we're an impatient people, uh, that we want clarity and direction, and if we're honest, we want our way when it comes to those things. Lord, remind us that you have not missed a step or a moment of our lives and that all of your plans are not only good, but they're for your glory. They have eternal purpose behind them. So, Lord, even as we are a people who wait and who wait in the unknown, I pray that you would help us to be faithful. And so, Lord, as we go through your word today, we ask that you would open our eyes. Show us wonderful things from your law. Uh, Remove the darkness, the blindness that we bring to it, uh, the sin that uh, so easily entangles us and hinders us from not only understanding, but from obeying. And we ask that, Through the clarity of your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make us a people who are worshipful and obedient. And Lord, how we need your help to do those things. We ask in Christ's name, amen. I don't know about you, but I really like clarity. I like to know what expectations are. I like to know what the standard is so that I know that I am meeting it or that I am falling short of it. Uh, Not only do I like to know what the standard is, but I like to know the path to get there. If you give me the steps to meet the standard, then I have a clarity, a sense of what I'm supposed to be doing. And I don't know about you again, but many times, some of the most frustrating, the most disappointing, the most disheartening times in my life have been when I have felt that I am completely without direction. I can look back and I can think of several. And I left the Air Force Academy, someplace that I had spent years trying to get into. And then after two years, I left and came home and had no idea what it is I was supposed to be doing. And it wasn't that I was physically suffering. It wasn't that I was in great need of anything. I simply felt absolutely lost and alone and without a clear direction of what step should take which I should take next. When I was going through seminary and I'd finished three out of four years and the plan started to unfold and then it got completely unraveled. Money dried up and I left seminary and I had to get a quote-unquote real job and I didn't know if I'd ever be able to go back. And I had those difficult and honestly sinful discussions with God about what he was doing and why he would change his mind like that and why I would be set aside for this time. And those are times that are frustrating. Uh, They expose a lot of things that are good and that are helpful, but they can be very, very disheartening. And if you've ever been in a place of waiting, I'm sure you probably know at least a piece of what I'm talking about. It can feel dark and it can feel isolating. And somehow we think that if we just knew what we were supposed to be doing, if we just knew what it was we were supposed to do, even if it was a long way away, if we at least knew the direction, then we could do that next thing and maybe there would restore some sense of hope or purpose to our lives. And there's a thousand different ways that we could be waiting. Maybe you're waiting for that job to finally open up so that there's progress in your career. Maybe you're waiting for that man or the woman that you have hoped to marry. Maybe you're waiting for that person that is precious to you to come to faith. Maybe you're waiting for that relationship that is such a struggle and such a trial to finally smooth over. Maybe you're in high school and you're just waiting for your real life to start. No matter what the sense of waiting, God's word's not silent on how we should wait. And as we look through the book of Acts, there's actually a couple of really powerful examples of what we do in times of waiting. Both of these are gonna deal with the life and ministry of the apostle Paul, whose conversion we looked at last week. And the first one I want to look at is waiting and walking. Waiting and walking, because we're moving in chunks, we have to understand the road that got us here. What's what's the context again? And as we come to Acts chapter 16, we don't just come here out of the blue. In Acts chapter 15, we have what's called the Jerusalem Council. It's this really critical turning point in the life and the ministry of the early church. Uh, You have the gospel that explodes in Jerusalem, but now as it spreads out, you have Gentiles that are coming to faith, and there's a critical question here, and that is, how Jewish do you have to be to follow Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah promised to the Jews. If a Gentile comes to Christ, do they have to place themselves under the law in addition to placing themselves under Christ? Most specifically, there are people that are saying, if you're not circumcised, then you're not actually part of the faith. And you have, once again, this tremendous potential for division in the church, and uh, the apostles and the elders get together in Jerusalem. They hear from Paul what's been happening among the Gentiles, and they make the determination that the Jews themselves weren't able to keep the burden of the law, that the law showed the glory of God, but the law consistently highlighted our failure to live up to God's standards. And Peter says, we couldn't bear it. Why would we place that yoke, that burden on them? And so the determination is made uh, that you don't need to place yourself under the law. And they send a letter out to the churches uh, that basically highlights that decision, and only it encourages them to abstain or keep away from certain things that would be an offense to the Jews. See, they're building unity into the practice of that early church, and you kind of hear echoes of that as Paul writes in Romans about looking out for weaker brothers, those with differing convictions, not on sin, but on personal convictions. And as you come to chapter 16, verse 1, Paul is taking this letter out and he's informing the gentile believers about what they've said and in acts chapter 16 verse 1 it says Paul came also to derby and to Lystra and a disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer but his father was a Greek he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places for they all knew that his father was a Greek so Paul now has another faithful traveling companion in Timothy. He's separated from Barnabas at this point. He's joined up with Silas. So you have Paul and Silas and Timothy, a kind of a dream team of ministry here. Fruitful ministry is happening. Look what happens in verse 4. They went on their way through the cities and delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Ministry is happening. And not only is ministry happening, ministry is thriving It seems like everywhere Paul goes, a church gets planted and strengthened. Uh, Jews hear the gospel and they're antagonistic, but Gentiles are coming to faith in significant numbers. Paul has attached himself to men who are like-minded, who are passionate about ministry, and you see that the church is strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers. This is a time of growth. This is a time of fruit, and that is so critical for us to realize because what comes next is a real hard, sharp turn that we are not usually able to pick up on when we read this. Uh, because what comes next is a movement from this kind of freedom in ministry and this fruitfulness in ministry to a period of restriction. If you look at verses 6 through 8, it says, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. There's a lot of restriction there. These are names that we have trouble pronouncing. They're places that we are far separated from. And so usually when we read places like this, we read through them very, very quickly. And uh, we kind of muddle through the names in our minds and they just become names on print. But these are places and these are people. And that's one thing that the trip to Israel really cements is that these are places and people and distances that matter. And so as I go through this, and I want to read it again, I want you to look at this next slide because it kind of highlights the geography of where this is. This is in Asia Minor and... So there we go. And you see that star, it's there by Derby and Lystra, and that's where Paul picks up Timothy. So that's where he has that faithful companion added to his group. And it says, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And if you look at that, they start to move through Phrygia and Galatia, but that wasn't where they intended to go. They wanted to go into Asia. They wanted to go kind of southwest there. That's the area where those seven churches of Revelation are. But somehow they were prevented from doing that. We don't know exactly what it looked like for the Holy Spirit to forbid them to do it, but however he did, he made it clear that they were not to move into Asia. And then we get this next section. It says, and when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. You look at Bithynia up at the top there. And again, so if the Spirit prevented them from going south and west, they were gonna go north and east and do ministry up there, but it says now the Spirit of Jesus prevented them. Notice again, the Spirit and Jesus tied together. This is the will of God being made clear in their life. Once again, we don't know what it looked like for the Spirit of Jesus not to allow them, but the door is clearly shut. They have a desire to go into this area, and Christ prevents them. And so now we come to verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And that's all the way out on the tip of Asia Minor there. And we read through that, and we say, so what? Well, first of all, that's the most direct route they could have taken, and it's pretty doubtful they did that if they were actually trying to make inroads into these places. But as we read through this, what we don't often see, because we're separated by time and geography and culture and distance, is that at a minimum, this is some 300 miles. Now, I don't know when the last time you walked 300 miles was. Some of us did it in Israel, or it certainly felt like it. But this is weeks and weeks and weeks of walking. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are attempting to do ministry They are trying to be obedient to what they know God has placed on their life. And what they get is a no at every turn. Paul has been told by God that he will be an instrument of proclaiming the gospel not only to Jews and Gentiles, but even to kings. He has like-minded, passionate, gifted ministry partners. Ministry was flourishing. And now what we see is a series of absolutely closed doors. No, not there not that direction, not right now. And look, there are times when God closes doors and when he stops us. There are times when God uh, disciplines us, when we are being disobedient, where God will close doors until we deal with sin. That is absolutely true. There are times when God closes doors to keep us out of dangerous situations or things uh, that might harm us or our faith. That is absolutely true. You have to understand that this is not those times. Paul is living in obedience. Paul is doing fruitful ministry. Paul is pouring himself out for the church and for the sake of the gospel. There is nothing that we would think should hinder what Paul wants to do here. This is just a group of faithful men trying to be obedient to their calling. Now think about that for a moment. If you are doing your very best to be obedient to God's calling, and the answer begins to be no, and no, and those no's pile up, what's the temptation? What's the frustration? It would be tempting to think that either God had changed his mind or that God maybe just doesn't know what he's doing at all? To be angry? To be bitter? I mean, after all, God, don't you think those people need the gospel? Don't the people of Asia need the gospel? Don't the people of Bithynia need the gospel? God, if this is what you've called me to, If this is the ministry that you've given me, then why are you suddenly making it impossible for it to happen? But I love their response. From that restriction on to their response. And first, I love the reminder of what they don't do. Because nowhere in this do we have a record of frustration or anger. There's no despair. There's no self-pity. There's no sense of entitlement where God should let Paul do ministry the way he envisioned, in the time that he wanted, in the place that he wanted. No. They also don't force themselves to go ahead. When the door is closed, they take the Spirit's leading, again, whatever that looked like, and they simply move on. We do know that whatever this was, it didn't come with a preview, but here's what's coming. In other words, as Paul begins to walk, as Paul begins to move, God doesn't close the door to Asia, but say, don't worry, I'm calling you to Macedonia. But see, we know that because we read through this in about 10 seconds. He doesn't close the door to Bithynia but say, don't worry, I've got something greater happening here. From Paul and Silas and Timothy's perspective, the answer is just a no and that's it. And in times of uncertainty and waiting, this is the response that I love that we see from them and that's that they obey. Because if you look back to verse 6, When God closes that door, it doesn't say that Paul sat down and waited for something different to happen. He simply moves on to do the next thing. Not there? Okay. I know that I'm supposed to preach. I know that I'm supposed to plant churches. I know that I'm supposed to strengthen the church, so I'll simply walk to the next place. And the next, and the next. And when travel is difficult and expensive and potentially dangerous, how and why do you do that? How do you just take that next step not knowing whether that's the right next step? Well, you do that because you know the clarity of what you've been called to do and the one who called you to do it. In other words, Paul was faithful to simply do the next thing that he did know he was supposed to do. God in his sovereignty, as we look at this, that last picture, you don't have to go back, as we look at that picture you can see from our perspective God closing doors to move them exactly where he needed to go. Because in verse 9 we read, a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. We see that God was funneling them exactly where he needed to go, and as he does that, he moves them to Troas, and that jumping point for across the Aegean Sea onto the mainland of Greece, and what this is doing is it's moving Paul to the place where now the gospel isn't only going to go into Asia Minor. Now the gospel is going to go for the first time into Europe, and we read of the wonderful things that God does beyond this. Again, we're reminded because we've read the first part of the book of Acts that God said the gospel would go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is God moving forward that gospel plan by saying no. It's so hard for us to think of God moving forward by closing doors, and yet that's exactly what he does. And and there's also something in here that's easy to miss, and that's in verse 10 look at what else God does. It says, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. All right, I guess there's two things there. First of all, Paul was immediately ready to obey. You want to know what day-by-day day faithfulness does? It makes it significantly easier to determine the will of God in those unforeseen difficult circumstances and situations. If you want to be prepared to make major, life-altering, significant decisions, that happens by making the small, ordinary, mundane, boring, day-by-day decisions in a godly way. If we work hard about thinking biblically about the little decisions, we're going to be prepared to make those big decisions and to see when God does open those major doors. But do you notice anything else that changed there? For the first time in the book of Acts, You have we statements when it comes to ministry. Did you see that? When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. See, somewhere along that road, somewhere through all those closed doors, Luke has now been added to the traveling party. And in his sovereignty, God puts another ministry partner in Paul's life who will have a significant impact on spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And with that first picture of faithfulness and waiting, I want to turn to one more place. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 24. This time we're going to see Paul forced into a time of waiting, but this time he won't have the opportunity to keep walking. And so this time I want to think through the idea of waiting and working. What does it mean to continue to do the work that God has given you to do when you don't have the ability to change your physical circumstances around you? And once again, I want to look briefly at the road or the way that we got here. Back in chapter 21, Paul comes to, uh, back into Israel. He has covered thousands of miles of travel. He's preached the gospel. He's planted churches. He's encouraged believers. He's moving toward Jerusalem, and he's doing that, bringing an offering for the church that is in significant need there. Saints from all over the empire have uh, contributed to this fund to help the Jerusalem church, and Paul is going now to deliver that gift. And as he comes back to Israel, he's warned uh, through the Holy Spirit speaking through others that what he is going to is toward imprisonment. That as he comes to Jerusalem, he's going to be bound for the sake of the gospel. And he says that he's not only ready to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So he goes to Jerusalem, and he meets with James and the elders, and he tells them about the wonderful things that God is doing among the churches of the Gentiles, and they rejoice in those things. Um, And James tells Paul that there are those who are stirring up trouble because they're teaching, or they're saying that Paul is teaching people to ignore the law of Moses, to ignore their tradition, to ignore their history, to put aside that worship, And abandon all of that for the sake of Christianity. And of course, there's a grain of truth in that, and that Christ has overcome what the law could not. But Paul has never uh, told anybody to abandon their Jewish heritage. And so Paul goes to the temple uh, with four other men to keep a vow, to worship, to to do these things that would show harmony and unity among the body. But as he's there at the temple purifying himself, he's arrested, and, and a mob scene starts and the Tribune there, uh, Lysias, he has to pull him into the barracks outside the temple to figure out what's going on. And Paul gives this brilliant, wonderful defense of the gospel. And uh, as he do that, things get violent again. And so Paul has a chance again to testify. And there's such a, a violent riot that starts even there in the middle of the council that once again they pull him back. And at this time, it's getting late in the day. And there's 40 men, and they make a vow, and they say that Paul will die before they eat or drink again. And this is this dramatic scene of Paul in prison. And they're waiting for him to be transferred to the council chambers the next day so that they can ambush him and kill him. And the plot is made known. And in the middle of the night, Paul is spirited out of Jerusalem and sent over to Felix in Caesarea with 200 soldiers and 200 spearmen and 70 horses. And it's this dramatic kind of midnight escape. And Paul comes to a place called Caesarea. And Caesarea is the headquarters of, Gover- of Governor Felix. It's about 60 miles away, and that's the road that brings us to chapter 24. Paul's now in Caesarea, and Felix says that he's going to hold him until his accusers arrive. And as we come to the beginning of chapter 24, I want to now look at the restriction that's there. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. It says, After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and spokesmen, one Tertullus, and they laid before the governor the case against Paul. Now, that sounds pretty restrictive. Paul is falsely accused, and now he's forced to wait in Caesarea. He knows what he's been promised to do. In fact, at this point, the Lord has strengthened him. On that very night when that plot was hatching, the Lord came to Paul and said, You've testified to the truth in Jerusalem. You're going to do the same thing in Rome. And now here he comes to Caesarea, and he's forced to wait on these people making false accusations. And that's exactly what they do in 24, 2 through 8. They kind of lay out their case against Paul, and there's three main things that they say. They say that Paul stirs up riots that he's the ringleader of a sect that they call the Nazarenes, and that he's profaned the temple. And of course, only one of those things is even remotely true. The Nazarenes would be associated with Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul is a leader among the Christian church, but he's hardly a ringleader of a rebellious sect. And Paul makes his defense fairly easily. He tells Felix, he says, you can look into these things. I've been here about 12 days. And by the way, five of those days... He was in Felix's custody. He says he's hardly had time to start a riot. He says it is true. He follows the way. Again, that name that we've seen attached to Christianity. But he says that's not stirring up hatred and dissension. It's actually in full adherence to the law and the prophets. This is a right way to worship. He says he wasn't causing trouble. He says when they found him, he was in the temple purifying himself. He says he wasn't starting a riot. He wasn't preaching, stirring up problems in the synagogues. When they arrested him, he was actually simply worshiping and purifying himself. He was actually being obedient to aspects and tenets of the law. And so Paul knows that he hasn't done anything that the Romans would find worthy of punishment. And he knows that his uh, accusers aren't able to offer any proof. And by the way, Felix knows that too. But I want you to look down to verse 22. Acts 24 and verse 22. It says, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying when Lysias the, tribute com- the Tribune comes down, then I will decide your case. Well, maybe that's the restriction. That Paul now has to wait, even though Felix knows he hasn't done anything wrong. And Lysias is all the way back in Jerusalem, and so well, how long is it going to take to send for him, to have him prepare himself, and to come and finally hear the case? Uh, but it actually doesn't end there. That's not the restriction we're talking about. Look at verse 23. It says, Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, so the time stretches on, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul, and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And so now he's put off until he has just an opportunity. Verse 26, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. Can you imagine that? He's waiting. He's being summoned and sent for often. He's saying the same thing over and over. He's in the same place, and nothing is moving forward. Well, for how long? Look at verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. For two years, Paul is confined in Caesarea, knowing that he's innocent, knowing that no proof of any kind has been brought against him, knowing that the people that are holding him know that he is innocent, simply waiting because of cowardice and because of corruption, just sitting and waiting. And he can't go to the next ministry opportunity. He can't just pick up and go to the next city. If this is a closed door, it's not just a door. This is a locked room, and there's no way to get around it and out of it. But what does Paul do? What's his response in this time? Well, this one we see that his response is that while he waits, he works. If he can't go somewhere else to do the work of the gospel, then he'll do the work of the gospel exactly where God has him. If he's in front of Felix, the governor, he's gonna preach the gospel. And this is one of those places where we got to go on our trip to Israel. So there's just a couple of slides here. I wanna kind of take you through what this looks like. If you have to be stuck for two years, Caesarea was a beautiful place to be. Although remember, he's still in prison. There's the foundations of the palace there. Place built by Herod, occupied by the regional governors. You can see in the next slide that it's kind of been taken over by the sea there, but those foundations, this is still the place where Paul was. This is the place where ministry, from our perspective, for two years, would have come to a full stop. But that's not what happens, is it? Because he's consistently sent for, and every time he's in front of Felix, what does he do? Well, Paul speaks about faith in Jesus Christ. And it's interesting because verse 25 says, and he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, and Felix was alarmed. You know why Felix was alarmed? Because Felix is not known for his righteousness or his self-control. That wife that he had, that's wife number three, and she was essentially stolen away from another man. Felix is known for his harshness and his brutality in putting down potential rebellions. There's a reason that he is fearful when he hears about righteousness and a coming judgment, but Felix doesn't do anything about that fear. Whatever conviction he felt, he put aside and he would continually send Paul away. But whatever conviction or fear was there, rather than act on it, it only seemed to delay it, to delay Paul's ability to do ministry. And at the same time, verse 26 says, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. Part of the reason that Felix puts him off is that he's hoping that a bribe will get sent his way. And if you are Paul, at some point there's the temptation here to be disobedient, isn't there? Because if the message changes, maybe if you don't make the one keeping you hostage angry, Maybe he'll let you go. Maybe you write to a couple of your friends in ministry and say, if you arrange some money, I might be able to get out of here and do the work of ministry. But he doesn't. I mean, if people are getting saved, isn't it worth it? And Paul's perspective is that although he might be in chains, the gospel is not that this is not an accident, this is not an oversight, this is not a mistake on God's part to put him where he is, that while he is wherever he is, if he is stuck in one place, whether that is in a city or in a cell, Paul will work wherever he's at. And it's not just here, it's constant. When he writes to the Philippians, he is in chains once again. And in Philippians 1 verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. How do chains advance the gospel? Chains are meant so that things do not advance. That's the whole purpose of chains. And he says, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. In other words, Paul wasn't chained to soldiers. Soldiers were chained to Paul. He had a captive audience for every time that guard rotated and every single one of them was going to hear the gospel before their shift was over. Did God work in that? Well, Philippians 4, it ends this way, Philippians 4.22, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. While Paul's in chains, the gospel even penetrates into the house of Caesar himself. I love that. We're so quick to think that God is stuck when we're stuck. That God is not at work when we don't have any kind of freedom. Now, wherever Paul is at, whether that's before Felix or Festus or Agrippa, or Caesar himself. He will do the work that God has given him to do. And there's another thing that likely happened here. It's not a gospel certainty, but for two years, as Paul is stationary, so is Luke, who is traveling with him. And as he's in Caesarea, Luke has access and opportunity to talk to eyewitnesses who have seen and heard of Jesus of Nazareth. And many scholars think, and I tend to agree, that sometime over this two-year period, Luke composes his gospel. Isn't that fascinating? That even his ministry seems to stop because the circumstances changed, God is doing exactly what he intends to do in the middle of it. Look, clarity is so important, but we tend to think that we need clarity in what comes next. That's not the case. What enabled Paul to do ministry in difficult circumstances? What enabled Paul to do ministry when it would seem like ministry was put absolutely on hold? It wasn't a clarity of knowing what was next. It was a clarity of knowing what his mission was in the first place and the God who set him on that mission. So what do we do, church, individual Christian, as we are called to wait? First, we keep walking. What does that look like? Well, we have a habit of getting ahead of ourselves. We have a habit of planning out the next 30 steps and assuming that everything is going to go right. We plan our career. We plan our marriage and family and children. We plan our retirement. And as soon as things start to get a little sideways, we start to get very, very nervous. Now, that doesn't mean we don't plan for the future. It doesn't mean that we're not wise with our resources. That's not what I'm saying but it does mean that we need to be reminded that the future is absolutely unknown to us, but that not one moment of it is unknown to the God that we serve. And that while He has not told us what we will be called to do in 20 years, you realize that God has told you exactly what you are called to do today. There is not one of us sitting here that does not know God's will for our life right now, today. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Can you do that wherever you're at? Love others as yourself. Can you do that where you're at? Give thanks in everything. Pray without ceasing. Preach the gospel. Always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. See, there are things that we are called to do on a day-by-day basis that will set us as habitually obedient so that we have the ability to walk in obedience in whatever circumstances we're in. Second, we need to keep working Some of you might feel absolutely stuck today, stuck in a dead-end job, stuck in a hopeless relationship, stuck in school, wondering when the next thing happens. We are reminded that the Christian is never stuck without something to do, not just to keep us from being bored, but never stuck without something not only to do, but of internal importance to do, Do you realize that that whatever situation you feel confined and restricted and stuck in, that God has put divine and eternal purpose in that? In that job that you're stuck in, you are called to work and labor for the gospel, knowing that God can use that with eternal impact. In that relationship that you struggle with that's a burden, God might give you the opportunity to present the gospel in a powerful way. You might be suffering and suffering deeply. And God in his sovereign wisdom and love might call you to be an example of faithfulness and suffering that challenges the hardness of the people around you. I don't know your specific circumstance or situation, but I do know the God who oversees and is sovereign over that. And that's the last thing. We need to know why. We need to know why Christians wait differently than the world, or at least we ought to. And the reason is we know the God who is sovereign over our circumstances, that we are not victims of time and chance and effort and failed ambition. You and I are under the sovereign and merciful and kind hand of a holy God who oversees every aspect of his creation, who in his good pleasure has placed us exactly where he has at exactly the right time and gifted and enabled you to do exactly what He has called you to do. There is so much hope in that. And I'm not saying that waiting is easy, and I'm certainly not saying that I'm good at it. But I'm saying that as the church thinks rightly, our waiting can lead to worship. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this time that we have together. Thank You for making us wait. Lord, so often my own agenda seems very right. It seems to make so much sense to me. Lord, I'm reminded that I'm finite and failed and fallen, and we need your wisdom and we need your guidance. Lord, ultimately, even if we don't feel like we're stuck in a situation, the church waits for you to return. And even in that, you're not slow as some count slowness. You're patient, not willing that any should perish. Lord, you've given us work to do. Give us clarity on what that work is and consistently remind us of the faithfulness of the God we serve. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.